Finally, a full-time high school. Yeah, we better not burn this place down. <laughs> Hello, Degrassi fans, and welcome to the Degrassi Kid podcast, where each week we break down the history and impact of our favorite teen TV show. I'm Jocelyn, and today we're diving into the complete history of Degrassi High. We'll be looking at the television series that ran for two seasons, the summer finale movie Schools Out, and the true-to-life docuseries made by the actual Degrassi cast called Degrassi Talks. This season, not only are we looking at Degrassi High's key episodes, like Erica's abortion or Dwayne being diagnosed with HIV, but we're also going to be asking some key questions. Why did the producers ensure Degrassi Junior High was officially over by burning down the building? What changes were happening behind the scenes that skyrocketed the show into newfound success? And how did the real Degrassi kids manage their sense of normalcy while also being recognized as international television stars? We're going to break it all down, and it's only going to happen here on a brand new season of the Degrassi Kid Podcast. The kids were growing up, and it was time for their stories to grow up with them. Or was it? Before the end of Degrassi Junior High, Linda Schuyler was asked a question. What's next? She said, I don't know if we create Degrassi Senior High. This cast does work well together, but on the other hand, the demographics for CBC favor staying with junior high kids. So do we get an all-new cast, or do I retire and go to tennis camp in the Caribbean? (laughs) Finding this quote from Linda blew me away. I feel like the backstory of how each Degrassi series got its start is pretty well-defined and easy to follow. The Kids of Degrassi Street was just a one-time short film that snowballed into a series. This gave Linda and Kit enough attention and enough money to start a new series called Degrassi Junior High. On that show, Spike has a baby who becomes the main character for Degrassi The Next Generation, which sees so many kids grow up and move on over 14 years of high school that they decided to start all over again with Degrassi Next Class. You're probably like, okay, well, now I don't have to listen to the rest of this podcast. (laughs) But my point is, even I just did it right there. We always just kind of lump together Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High as one single unit because they flow so well into each other. But it's really important to note that this gap between the two shows was a really big deal at the time. I mean, they burned down Degrassi Junior High School, leaving no room for it to come back as the same series as it was before. So if the only option was to start all over again, were they going to move on to a brand new cast, or were Linda and Kit just going to bow out while the show was still a hit? Linda and Kit decided that they wanted to continue with the show. Everything that they had worked so hard for on the Kids of Degrassi Street had finally paid off. But starting all over again with a brand new cast just didn't make any sense, and they hadn't introduced enough new characters along the way to ensure a next generation of junior high school students. So they decided to move along to senior high school. This is why Degrassi The Next Generation starts setting itself up for success by introducing at least three new characters every single season. Like in season two, we get Marco, Craig, and Ellie. Season seven, we get all the Lakehurst kids. In season 10, we meet Drew, Adam, and Eli. And it just goes on and on forever. And this idea of, hey, do we get brand new kids or do we keep following the old ones will actually reappear as a roadblock when the next generation kids start graduating. In Degrassi High, they just end the show, but in The Next Generation, they still are being renewed for new episodes, even after the characters had finished their year. But not everything was smooth sailing. The college years is a direct example of learning when you need to let go of your favorite characters and allow them to finally grow up and move on. 
But back in the 80s, this decision was made even tougher by the fact that Degrassi still wasn't a popular show. Sure, sure, it was well-received, it was airing successfully around the world, but this kind of cult classic vibe didn't pick up until Degrassi started airing back-to-back as reruns. And a huge part of that was the director of television programming on CBC. Degrassi became a household name because of Ivan Fetkin. Remember when we talked about the Canadian television industry being pumped full with financing? Money was just everywhere. Well, a big part of that decision was because they wanted to see more Canadian representation on their airwaves. In the 1970s, Canadian radio broadcasters made a decision that 35% of the music they play on the radio must be from Canadian artists. At the time, this meant they needed to seek out and finance more Canadian musicians. Otherwise, you'd be playing like the same five songs over and over again. (laughs) So of course, this demand naturally created a boom in the Canadian music industry. Well, now it was time for television to do the exact same thing. CBC wanted to fill their station with two hours of authentic Canadian programming. Ivan Fekin was told to make it happen, and he set his sights on reality drama television. Ivan said he was looking for programming that was from the heart, things that have some reality to them, and you don't necessarily need a $20 million soundstage to do it. That's where Degrassi Junior High came in. He loved that Degrassi was filmed in Toronto, but the stories could apply to anyone all around the world. So he reached out to Linda Schuyler and told her, Degrassi Junior High would no longer be airing on Sunday nights. Instead, it's moving to primetime television, immediately following The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Linda Schuyler said no. (laughs) Stephen Stone details this meeting between Ivan and Linda in his book called Whatever It Takes. He says she just didn't think it was the right fit. She liked the control they had over Degrassi in their cozy Sunday night spot. And if you move it to primetime, she was worried, well, now do I have to make it a primetime show? But Ivan assured her it was the right move and he knew what he was doing. Linda said, okay, we'll do it, but you have to make me a promise. If it doesn't perform, you can't just cancel us. You have to put us back on Sunday nights. Ivan agreed. And just for context, Linda had no authority to do this. (laughs) She sold the broadcasting rights to CBC. Ivan could do whatever he wanted. He could broadcast it on the moon if he wanted to. He was basically just being nice and saying like, hey, this is a change we're making to your show. Just let me know about it. And she was like, no, you're not doing that. (laughs) I absolutely love her. But luckily for Linda and luckily for us, she didn't have to worry. Ivan was right. He knew what he was doing. Degrassi skyrocketed its success even higher than before. Degrassi was perfect. Ivan said, there's nothing bogus on that show. I wish I had 20 more just like it. And you might be wondering, why did Stephen Stone put this story in his book? I thought he didn't work on Degrassi again until The Next Generation. Well, when Linda was making the transition from the kids of Degrassi Street into Degrassi Junior High, she knew she needed some help. She was doing absolutely everything on her own, so she sought out an entertainment lawyer. And she just so happened to remember the kind young fellow who helped her secure the rights to Ida Makes a Movie, her future husband, Stephen Stone. She said, I trusted him. I didn't think he was out for himself in any way. So with all of Ivan and Stephen's support behind Degrassi Junior High, Linda and Kit decided they would continue into Degrassi Senior High School. Linda said, we feel a responsibility to help them through the transition. And Neil Hope had some wise words for parents who just didn't understand their teenagers at home. Watch Degrassi High on CBC. It's official. The kids have grown up and their stories can finally grow up with them. 
Degrassi High kicked off a brand new series in November 1989. Its theme song was created by musical producers Louis Manny and Wendy Watson, and Robert Mystician took over for the graphics. Robert Mystician, as in Stacy Mystician's dad. This trio also worked together on the Degrassi Junior High opening credits, which is why they might seem very similar to each other. Another thing that's happening behind the scenes is Degrassi is really diving into their educational side, and they created study guides that will partner along with the episodes. This allows for teachers to use Degrassi as a learning tool and facilitate discussions with their students about topics that they handle in the show, like underage drinking, sexual diseases, and pregnancy. This is, as many of you may know, my first introduction to Degrassi when I learned about puberty and the fact that my body was changing from the Degrassi Junior High episode, The Great Race, which is all about Melanie buying her first bra. And this is because in the United States, Degrassi is airing on a public education network called WGBH, which is part of PBS. Kate Taylor, who made that comment that not everyone has a family like the Cosbys, she works on the American side for the Degrassi broadcasters. And fittingly enough, she was also a teacher before she went into film and production, just like Linda. And she said, when I was teaching, I would have loved to get my hands on something like Degrassi. But that's not the only thing that's interesting to note about the relationship between Degrassi and its American broadcasters. Because Degrassi was airing as an educational program in the US, the American broadcaster wasn't airing any commercials. And this meant that the show had to run five minutes longer than the Canadian broadcast did back home. To accomplish this, Kit Hood said they'd film the full-length American version with an extra five minutes of material, then trim it down for the Canadian broadcast later on. He said, it wasn't always an easy choice, but as we got more proficient, we'd know during the very first edit what would never be seen in Canada. Isn't that crazy? Like, I didn't even know that. And it wouldn't just be like an extra five-minute scene plumped in the middle of the episode. Most scenes are only a minute or two long as it is. I actually sat down and watched the Canadian version of Spike's pregnancy episode, It's Late, side-by-side with the American version, and I counted at least six scenes that weren't shown in Canada. And there were often just small moments that didn't make a huge impact. Like, there's a longer hug between Spike and her mom outside the clinic. In the American version, someone asks Spike if she's okay before she talks to Shane in the hallway. And Joey and Wheels talk about Lucy's party, saying if the party was at their house, no way their parents would let Spike and Shane be alone together. But that was junior high. Now that the kids are older and have moved on to high school, how much more grown up are their stories about to get? But before we move on to the standout moments in Degrassi High, I want to tell you about a standout sponsor for the podcast. I've partnered with Evie's Treasures to bring you a monthly mail-out option. This month, subscribers on Patreon will receive a personalized postcard from yours truly, and the rest will be filled with goodies from Evie's Etsy shop, which will also be linked in the description. You'll be guaranteed two Degrassi stickers and a special Degrassi bonus item just for you. This week, Sarah J upgraded their pledges on Patreon to try out this new mail-out option, and I just know they're going to love it. So thank you to Evie's Treasures for being our first sponsor on the podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash DegrassiKid to grab your Degrassi swag bag today. What are we going to tell Mom and Dad if you're pregnant? I'd never tell them. I think they'd figure it out. They wouldn't know if I didn't show. When you're pregnant, you show. Not if I had an abortion. As we know, Degrassi High kicks off with huge two-part episodes that will define the series as hard-hitting and unwilling to compromise. Season one takes us through a new start. Erica spent her summer with a boy named Jason, and after having repetitive, unprotected sex, she's pregnant. Erica goes through all the same realities as Spike did. She takes a pregnancy test, she tries to hide it from everyone, and eventually, she has to face her reality. 
Except this time, her choice is to have an abortion. And Degrassi does something interesting here. First, it starts in the middle of the story. We don't get the same insight as we did with Spike's pregnancy. We never see Erica's relationship with Jason. In fact, we never see him at all. Instead, we only focus on the after-effects of finding out you're pregnant. Now we're not just dealing with a girl who was pressured one single time, we're dealing with a young girl who happily consented and was eager to have unprotected sex with a partner over and over again. This is a huge swing for primetime television. It's one thing to ask us to sympathize with someone who was kind of pressured into it, but now we're being asked to sympathize with someone who gave it up willingly. You and I know that there's no difference, the same way you and I know an interracial kiss is no difference. At the time, this decision is huge. As well, because we're getting into heavier topics for Degrassi High, they're really cementing the idea that if the A plot is serious and dark, the B plot will be lighthearted and comedic. Here, the Degrassi kids are getting hazed on their first day of school. Dwayne and his buddies are picking on the new kids, covering them in shaving cream, making them put on ladies' underwear, and they even make Joey roll a banana across the floor with his nose. I dive even deeper into this episode on my podcast, How Degrassi Handles Controversy, which is all about Erica, Manny, and Lola's abortions on the show. We'll look at the political landscape around Degrassi and how it changed in 1989, 2003, and 2017, while also comparing things like how many times were they allowed to say abortion, how far did they go on screen, and what were the long-lasting effects after each student had their abortion in high school. But for now, things keep moving on. The Zits film their music video for Everybody Wants Something, and the Savages stop by the school to film a music video of their own. This is something that's been happening the entire time throughout the series. Degrassi's been developing their own sense of world building around fictional media and celebrities. Yick and Arthur watch Swamp Sex Robots, Stephanie fangirls over Damon King, and the kids stay out all night at a gourmet scum concert. None of these things are real. <laughs> it continues on in future generations. Adam and Eli love the band Dead Hand. Jimmy, Marco, and Craig go to a Kid Elric concert. The kids all eagerly fawn over the television show West Drive. But why do they do that? Well, I mentioned before that the show is airing all around the world, and it's airing over and over again in reruns. Having these kind of non-specific references means the show can be more relatable to a wider audience and they have more control over what Gourmet Scum is doing than they ever would a real-life band like Metallica. Though it is interesting to see how real-life references like Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill perform in a show that's airing now, but meant to take place in the 80s, like Degrassi did. Then we get to the episode Nobody's Perfect, which is where Kathleen faces abuse from her boyfriend Scott. This is where Degrassi's intersectionality really starts to take place. Because they've not really introduced many new characters, all of Degrassi's students start going through multiple life-changing traumatic events while still in high school. For example, Kathleen is anorexic, with an alcoholic mother, and an abusive boyfriend. That's a lot for one kid to handle. But if those stories are being told, it makes sense that Kathleen would be the one to tell them. Part of the reason Kathleen develops her anorexia is because she wants to have some control. She's struggling with her mother's alcohol addiction, and she copes by pretending like everything's perfect and totally fine. That she's perfect and totally fine. Story-wise, it makes sense that when her boyfriend starts to abuse her, she'd see it as her own fault and cope by pretending like everything's okay. However, Linda Schuyler does address the fact that, at Degrassi, this small group of kids going through three or four life-changing traumatic events over and over again isn't totally realistic. But they're not going for realistic, they're striving for authentic. It's unlikely one school would have this many horrible things happen at the same time, 
But if it did happen, Degrassi does it best and reflects the real world experiences of each tragedy. So just keep that in mind next time you're like, I would never send my kid to Degrassi. <laughs> Linda Skyler wouldn't send her kid there either. <laughs> and season one of Degrassi High ends with lots of drama when Michelle becomes addicted to caffeine pills. Now, I think it would be so interesting to compare this episode of Degrassi to the Saved by the Bell episode where Jesse Sprano becomes addicted to caffeine pills. It's easily Saved by the Bell's most well-known and most Degrassi-like episode, and they came out in the exact same year. I mean, they tackle the same topic for the same demographic, but their styles and values and storytelling are totally different. So let me know if you think that would be fun, because I will gladly do that. And with that, we continue on into season two of Degrassi High. Did you hear what they said? You're bleeding too, man. What are you talking about? Do you want this on you? What if I had AIDS? Dwayne, if you got AIDS, man, that's fine by me. I'll be at your funeral, man. I'll be the guy laughing. Bad Blood is probably the most well-known episode from the Degrassi High series. Degrassi pushed boundaries by having a leading straight male character contract what was known as the gay disease at the time. However, I think this is such a huge episode that I'm going to do a podcast about it entirely on its own. I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of what I have to say about the standout episode. So we'll just say this. Degrassi goes above and beyond in the way of storytelling and challenging real-world dialogue around HIV and AIDS in the 1980s, with their premiere episode, Bad Blood. And for their final season, Degrassi does not slow down. Liz recounts her sexual assault as a child, the Degrassi kids experiment with drugs, and one kid commits suicide in the school bathroom. Claude's suicide is often criticized from a modern lens because of how much it comes off as glorifying suicide. Claude does it as an act of revenge. We hear the gunshot, we see his lifeless body, and the after effects don't seem to be that strong. In comparison, when Spike gets pregnant or when Joey fails a grade, it has a huge ripple effect on the rest of the franchise. But I don't know if we see that exact same thing happening here. Everyone moves on, which is expected, but they almost seem to move on too quickly for such a highly dramatic suicide in their school. Cam's suicide in season 12 has a ripple effect that can be seen all the way into Degrassi Next Class when Maya's battling depression because, as she says, he broke up with me by killing himself. But to be fair, we know Degrassi does their research, and it should be noted that our understanding of mental health has changed drastically since the 1980s and the 1990s. When it came time for Cam's suicide, they made sure it would happen off screen. They never confirmed the way he did it, and they were consciously aware of the copycat effect, which is when kids see something on TV and they want to try it themselves. Which is something 13 Reasons Why did not take accountability for when they decided to show their main character slit her wrists in a bathtub. Not only did we see her suicide happen, but she continued to live on through hours and hours of recorded tapes. She appeared in flashbacks, people talked to her in the afterlife. The show really glorified that if you kill yourself, you'll become the number one thing people talk about for the rest of their lives. And you'll be around to listen in as it all happens. Studies were done that showed the rate of suicide or suicidal attempts increased after the show aired. But the producers of 13 Reasons Why didn't seem all that concerned and never really took accountability for their ripple effect in the real world. In fact, it took Netflix stepping in to edit out her suicide scene and started to include warning labels on their episodes. Degrassi went into Cam's suicide episode knowing the risks they'd be taking with the copycat effect. This is why it took so long for them to tell the story again. Suicide only happens twice in their show. 
with Claude in 1991 and Cam in 2013. Degrassi wanted to make sure if they told this story, they told it right. Even when they told Ellie's self-harm storyline, they also had the copycat effect in mind. They knew it was important to tell the story, but they had to try and find the balance between educating kids who are already doing it on its dangerous effects and how to seek help without introducing it as a brand new idea to young, impressionable teenagers who may want to try it for the first time after seeing it on Degrassi. This is another one of those things I could do an entire podcast about, to be honest, and I did make quite a couple TikToks about Aislinn Paul, who stood out against 13 Reasons Why. She played Claire Edwards on Degrassi, and I'll link my TikTok in the description so you can take a peek yourself. But for now, in the Degrassi High episode showtime, Degrassi made sure to use all their resources to keep their young audience safe. So they partnered with the Kids Help Phone. A public service announcement was aired with Pat Mastriani and Stacey Mystician before and after each episode. They talked about how difficult the subject matter of suicide can be and suggested ways to get help if you need to talk to someone. Pat and Stacy might not be teen counselors, but if someone does reach out to them because they recognize their characters from the show, they at least have a basic understanding of these topics and how to redirect someone to get help. And that's huge. Because when Spike's pregnancy storyline was happening, Linda and Kit started to worry after young audience members would mail in children's clothing and toys to the Playing With Time production office. And Amanda would even get real people stopping around the street to get advice on if they're ready to have sex. But in real life, Amanda hadn't even had her first kiss yet. And just because you play a pregnant character on TV doesn't mean you all of a sudden know how sex works, or even when you're ready for it. Here's what Kit and Linda had to say in the behind-the-scenes special, Degrassi Between Takes. Poor Amanda, she's constantly asked, you know, are you really pregnant? What's it like? I mean, a lot of the fan mail says to her, I really like my boyfriend very much. Should I have sex? And we tell the kids, you're not teen counselors. She can't really tell you what it's like to be a 14-year-old who has to go home and tell her parents that she's pregnant. That's what scares me, is that, is that the audience sometimes expects the kids to have knowledge about their characters that they don't have in real life. From this moment, Lynn and Kit set out to ensure that the Degrassi kids would go through workshops, learning how to separate themselves from their characters. Amanda said it was hard to take on such a big responsibility at such a young age. Someone would come up to me and tell me everything that happened to them. And what can I say? They think I went through the same thing, but I didn't. It was just my character. But just because fan reactions could be hard to deal with sometimes doesn't mean the kids shied away from taking on big storylines. At Degrassi, if you kept your grades up, behaved well on set, and proved you could take on a sensitive topic, you might find yourself pregnant, contracting an STD, or in an abusive relationship as a reward. And the kids loved it. It was also like a symbol of social status in the Degrassi world. Darren Brown said, Whenever we do a read-through of a script, you'd see something like, Dwayne walks away from the clinic. And you're like, nice, I got AIDS. Stacey Mystician said, they were so embarrassing. Each week it was like, which totally humiliating thing are they going to put us through? But you wanted those storylines. As awful as it sounds, you wanted to be the one who got AIDS. The kids felt proud to take on these major topics and prove they had the acting chops and the maturity to handle it. And Degrassi did what they could to protect their young actors from all the hardships that come with being a child star. And it wasn't just about how to handle being recognized or being confused for your character. Degrassi also realized that a 14-year-old shouldn't have to deal with a work-life balance. So how did Linda Schuyler and Kit Hood make sure their real, authentic kids could still go to school and have a normal childhood like all their other friends? 
But before we talk about what the Degrassi kids got up to on set, let's talk about what the Degrassi kids are getting up to over on Patreon. I'd like to welcome Alyssa Basic and Jamie Bees, who signed up over on patreon.com slash Degrassi kid. And a thank you to Owen for upgrading. Thanks to these guys, I'm almost at my goal of 40 patrons per month, which is huge. So head on over to see what kind of rewards they'll be getting into for supporting the podcast. But now it's time to find out what was it like on the set of the real Degrassi High School. There are no Winnebago's or catering services here. <laughs> That's what Rebecca Saw said when she was asked, what's it like to be a TV star? There are no Winnebago's or catering services here. I love that. Stacy Mustician said, you have to really like what you're doing because you don't have people catering to you. And I think this is such a testament to Linda Schuyler and her passion for really helping kids. Linda said it was important to her that she wasn't pulling out her real students from school to have them pretend to be students on TV. Degrassi's publicist Catherine Ellis said, we have a rule that you never miss more than eight days of school in a month. And even so, just because you're an actor on a TV show doesn't mean you get to skip out on homework either. It's actually a requirement that the kids have a certain amount of school time on set to make sure they keep up with their homework and assignments. Rebecca Saw said, I'd be writing a chemistry exam on set at 7 a.m. and then a production assistant would send it over to the school. And for a lot of kids, it wasn't just about getting the work done. Rebecca's mom said, if your marks fall below 80% in any of your classes, I'm pulling you off the show. Most teachers understood the dual lives of their Degrassi students, and they'd actually receive school credit for their acting work. After all, they were gaining incredible real-life experience. But the kids admitted some teachers could still be jerks about it. Pat Mastriani said, in some classes, I have an 81 or an 82 average, but in geography, I have a 31. My teacher just isn't understanding. Pat added on that he actually found having a one-on-one -on -one tutor on set helped them in some of his classes, but other actors felt it was no use, because after filming all day, they were just too tired to do their homework. So, besides on-set tutoring, what did filming an episode look like back in the days of Degrassi High? Amanda Steptoe said that one single episode can take about two weeks for the actors, a week of rehearsals and a week of filming that all took place between April and October. This way, they could mostly film over the summer and not have to miss a lot of school. Each morning at 7.15, the Degrassi kids would get picked up by the company van, the same one that Pat stole that one time, <laughs> and they'd be taken to either St. Vincent Massey Public School if they were filming Degrassi Junior High or Centennial College if they were filming Degrassi High. These were the real schools in Toronto that they turned into Degrassi each summer. You can even still go and visit them today. Filming wouldn't start until around 9 a.m., but this gave the kids lots of time to do their own hair and their own makeup if they chose to, and they could put together their outfit for the day. They were encouraged to bring their own clothes, but because the scenes weren't always filmed in chronological order, they'd still have to coordinate their outfits. One of the actors said they had milk crates labeled day one, day two, day three, and depending on what scene you were shooting, you'd have to go change into that outfit. At 9 a.m., the production manager, Sari Friedland, would go up to the holding room and grab the kids that were needed on set. Then shooting would finally begin. Sometimes the shoots could last up until 6.30 at night, depending on how much screen time your character had. Sometimes you could just be a background actor who sits in class or stands at their locker for the day. These background roles were called narbos, which meant no acting required by others. Your days would be pretty short because all of your scenes would only happen at the school, and you wouldn't have any lines to remember. But if you were a main character who got pregnant, for example, you'd have scenes at home with your family that could be shooting well into the evening. So how much did they get paid for all of this? For missing school and being at work, sometimes all day long in the summer? 
Well, the Degrassi kids never opened up about it, but Pat Mastriani quipped, hey, it's more than you'd get from babysitting. (laughs) And with that look into how the Degrassi episodes are made, I think it's time we move on to the summer finale movie, Degrassi School's Out. Degrassi was over, and they knew it. The season two finale, One Last Dance, ended before the Degrassi kids could finish their senior year. But even though there were still more stories to tell, it was time to move on. Many of the cast were grown up, already graduated in real life, and ready to start their own careers outside of the show. It was time, Linda said. The Degrassi team recognized they were bowing out while the show was still fresh and strong. Way better than waiting until they're cancelled or until nobody's interested anymore. This strong finish would also make an impact on how well they can pitch Degrassi The Next Generation as a brand new series 10 years from now. But during the final season of Degrassi High, Linda Schuyler, Kit Hood, Yan Moore, and the rest of the Playing With Time team brainstormed. How do we wrap up a show like Degrassi, where every episode is already such a big milestone in teenage storytelling? That's when they came up with a summer finale movie called Degrassi Schools Out. Retroactively, this movie would go on to become a cult classic. Pat Mastriani, who played Joey Jeremiah, currently hosts viewing parties all over Canada. The most recent one was actually on August 5th in Newfoundland. (laughs) But in 1992, after a year since Degrassi's last finale episode, teenagers are eagerly awaiting to see what happens next with their favorite Degrassi kids as they grow up and move on. Now, what was actually surprising to me is I went looking for movie reviews from this time period, and the reviews didn't seem to be that good. But you have to keep in mind, in the 90s, the only people reviewing movies were adults who worked for newspapers. It's not the same as today, where everyone's opinion is accessible on the internet. But resoundingly, these newspaper articles had titles like, Degrassi Schools Out Misses the Bus, Degrassi Schools Out Fails Its Final Test. Critics claimed that fans were let down by this blockbuster season finale saying they didn't follow up with many of their favorite characters, instead focusing on the drama of Joey and Snake's sex lives, or lack thereof. They also said that the car crash where Wheels drinks, drives, and kills a kid wasn't the feel-good summer ending they were hoping for, and that Degrassi caved into the drama. Though I was not surprised at all that Degrassi didn't end on a totally feel-good ending. I think this is a huge part of Degrassi's brand. Good people do bad things. And just because it's the end of a semester or your graduating year, doesn't mean all of a sudden your life is drama-free and you'll never make a mistake ever again. But the reviews did have some positives to them. They recognized how monumental it was for Lucy to give a condom demonstration to Caitlin, and Stefan Brogren drops the first F-bomb on primetime TV in Canada. Joey Jeremiah spends his summer dating Caitlin. Shut up! And fucking Tessa. Oh, wild ethics, wild hero. Let's have a great big hand, shall we? Big round of applause, hey? As much as we credit Caitlin Ryan, it's actually Snake who told her that Joey was effing Tessa Campanelli. Stefan said, I was actually so excited to say it. We filmed two versions, one where I said screwing and the other where I say the F word. I didn't know which one CBC was going to air until they broadcast it. Then there was a huge uproar. But they couldn't have imagined how many people would tune in to Degrassi's finale movie. 2.3 million people across Canada get to say, I remember where I was when Degrassi said, You were fucking Tessa Campanelli. I had to say it at least once, okay? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? And this idea of a generational finale would go on to inspire films like Degrassi Goes Hollywood and Degrassi Takes Manhattan. The whole idea of Spinner marrying Emma was to close out their original generation, to kind of give them a send-off and finish their stories now, too. Now, no need for us to debate on if it was a good idea, but it was still an idea. (laughs) But you can see how those films are inspired by the foundation of Degrassi Schools Out. So 
Between Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High, we've met over 50 new students across five seasons, which includes 70 episodes and a movie. But still, it isn't quite over yet. We've all got real problems, but can't always solve them. We need someone to listen, cause we all need some talking. Some try to ignore, but we've got to explore. We cannot hide it all away, let's do this together. Whoa, I'll talk to you. Degrassi Schools Out aired January 5th, 1992. And just one month later, we already got a brand new Degrassi series. This time, a true-to-life documentary exploring all the topics they covered in the show. Drugs, sex, alcohol, abuse, depression, and sexuality. Each topic had its own episode and was hosted by a character who faced that same situation in Degrassi. Amanda Steptoe took on the sex episode after Spike got pregnant. She could also relate to the topic in real life because Amanda was adopted. Stacey Mystician took on sexuality because, as we remember, Caitlin had those weird dreams about her maybe gay teacher. <laughs> and in real life, Stacey had a sister who was a lesbian. But we're not going to dive too deep into this because I already did a complete breakdown of the series called The Impact of Degrassi Talks. We meet real teenagers who face these real issues all across Canada. We meet Stacy's queer sister in real life, and we learn even more about the alcoholic's disease that took the life of Neil Hope's father. But finally, after all that, Degrassi's officially over, and both the actors and their characters are ready to take on the real world. So let's make sure we answered our questions and get into the final breakdown of the history of the Degrassi Classic series. But before we get into our final breakdown, I want to say a huge thank you to my Patreon subscribers. Annie C, Annie M, Ashley, Brittany, Chrissy, Evie, Glenn, Kat, Lucy, Max, Najama, Rachel, Randy, Rebecca, Sierra, Steve, and Teal. And a special shout out for Stevie Jarawa for being my highest supporter on Patreon. Stevie is easily the kindest person I know and he deserves a little special love this week. So thank you to everyone for making my Degrassi dreams come true. And even better, Riley, Sarah J, Stevie, Alyssa, and Randy will get access to a bonus mini-sode this week over on Patreon. We'll be doing a deep dive into a Where Are They Now of the original Degrassi cast. So if you want your own Degrassi mini-sode, head on over to patreon.com slash DegrassiKid and sign up as a Degrassi Kid yourself. Now let's head on in to the final breakdown. How did Degrassi's first episode ever get made? Why did Kit Hood and Linda Schuyler decide to keep restarting their series over and over again? And what were the decisions behind the scenes that led to Degrassi's infamous core values that will carry over into a new generation? It's time to do our final breakdown on the entire Degrassi classic series. The Kids of Degrassi Street kicked off the entire franchise in 1979 after Linda Schuyler, who was a junior high school teacher, wanted to see her kids represented in media. Their standalone short film, Ida, makes a movie snowballed into more films, with more stories to tell and an even bigger crew to tell them. Then, after the perfect mix of experimenting and funding in Canadian broadcasting, Kit and Linda set out to start all over again with Degrassi Junior High, taking advantage of all the things they learned on Degrassi Street. It was here that Degrassi's core values would be strengthened and carried on for every future reincarnation of the show. The stories would be taken seriously and told from the kids' perspective. Adults would only chime in if a kid was around to overhear it. The cast would be filled with young, age-appropriate actors who didn't have a lot of experience in anything aside from just being kids. Anytime Degrassi told a hard-hitting story about real issues like pregnancy, HIV, or abuse, they'd call in experts to help get the story right, including real-life teenagers where they'd ask, 
what was this experience like for you? And finally, after going through Degrassi High and Degrassi Schools Out, they turn the camera around and have those real-life teenagers tell the stories themselves, capping off our classic series with a true-to-life docuseries, Degrassi Talks. And it doesn't stop there. Degrassi was recognized with award after award for standout episodes like He Ain't Heavy, Nobody's Perfect, A New Start, Bad Blood, and at the 1988 Gemini Awards, they even took home the award for multiculturalism. This moment was so beautiful to watch. Linda and Kit were joined on stage by the real Degrassi kids, dressed to the nines and ready to celebrate all their hard work on the show. This multicultural mix of kids looked almost exactly like the young students Linda met on her first day of teaching when she opened her door for the first time and saw the kids who spoke English at school and celebrated a different culture at home with their families. To showcase this, each actor said thank you and accepted the award in a different language, something that was connected to their own personal backgrounds and family history of being Canadian at school and being themselves at home. And it didn't stop there. Degrassi would go on to receive nomination after nomination for outstanding achievements in directing, acting, screenwriting, you name it. And even though Degrassi Schools Out seemed to wrap up the series in 1992, you and I both know in 10 years, the show will come back as Degrassi The Next Generation, executively produced by Linda Schuyler and Stephen Stone's new production company, Epitome Pictures, Inc. But why did Degrassi come back? How were these stories about high school and the millennium going to be any different? And how would this new generation stay true to the Degrassi brand over a decade later? You'll just have to tune in next week to find out. But for now, let's listen in on Linda and Kit as they give their acceptance speech for a multitude of awards for Degrassi Junior High at the 1988 Gemini Awards. Thanks, guys. For 10 years, uh, Kit and I have been producing films for and about children, and there have been times when we have felt a little bit like second-class citizens in this industry. We don't feel like that anymore tonight. It's <laughs> really an honor for us to be standing on stage with 34 members of our repertory company. When we set out to fill the halls of Degrassi Junior High, we wanted to come as close as we could to examining the reality of an inner city school in Toronto. And this is the result. <laughs> Although our kids, uh, the cast of Degrassi Junior High might read like a who's who of the United Nations, they have a couple of things in common. One, they are terrific people to work with, and two, they're all Canadian and we're proud of them. <laughs>